Brothers and sisters, I invite you, if you have the scriptures before you, to turn in them to John chapter 8. This is one of three passages we'll have before us this morning. John's Gospel in the 8th chapter. I want to read from verse 31 through verse 36 of John chapter 8. This is the Word of God. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray again together. We want to celebrate, O Lord, the things which you love. We want to lament the things that you despise. We want our worship to fit our lives. We want our right thinking to flow into right acting. All this because we are your servants. Slaves indeed, and happily so. And so instruct us, Master, the ways of our Savior. This we pray in His name. Amen. On June 26, 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down the key provisions of a federal law known as the Defense of Marriage Act. In a decision now known as U.S. v. Windsor, the High Court ruled that the federal government would in fact recognize same-sex unions as marriages from that time forward. The very next day, the American Civil Liberties Union ran a full-page ad in at least one national Paper. The headline of the ad was America out for freedom. Underneath the heading of this full page ad was a very clever depiction of a party. The partiers were certain states of the union. The party was called the Freedom to Marry Party. The states of the Union already partying at the Freedom to Marry Party were states like Massachusetts and Connecticut and Vermont, as well as states like Iowa and Minnesota. Lined up outside of the party were the remaining 36 states in which same-sex marriage is still illegal. The smaller script Underneath the main heading says, some states late to the party. 
And beneath that we read, Republicans are key to securing the freedom to marry. The ACLU will continue to fight for the freedom to marry in every state. But we need Republican as well as Democratic support. Most Republicans would agree that we should treat everyone the way we would want to be treated and that the government shouldn't interfere in Americans' private lives. That's what the freedom to marry is all about. Freedom. You know the saying, perhaps, he who defines wins. The ability by one side or the other in a debate to define at the outset what the debate is about often leads to success, victory in the debate. For example, the last 40 some years, the abortion debate in our nation has been cast by both sides in order to seek to define the debate. One would define the issue in terms of the taking of a human life. The other side would define the issue in terms of depriving someone of a basic human right, the right of choice. In the other primary social issue of our day, homosexuality and same-sex marriage, the success of postmodern pundits and politicos lies largely in their ability to define the issue in terms of freedom. U.S. v. Windsor was a step forward in the cause of freedom. It struck a mighty blow at the vestiges of oppression and tyranny in our land. So the narrative goes. Brothers and sisters, it's just here that Christians need to be keenly mindful of what has happened to us in America. Something that began many years before U.S. v. Windsor, we have become profoundly confused about the true nature of freedom. Our notions of freedom as a country have been degraded to such an extent that American freedom is now antithetical to morality and to true religion. In short, America has long ago, in fact, embraced a notion of freedom that is, in fact, rebellion. It's come to despise the very thing that the Bible holds out as freedom and the path to freedom. This is part of a series this morning we've called In the Wake of U.S. v. Windsor. We're asking among three questions in that series This second question, how did we get here? Remember last week we looked at how U.S. v. Windsor has come in with the tide of a prevailing system of morality in America. We as a nation have made morality a question that's determined by man. Whether the individual in terms of his expressing himself or the society in terms of deciding what it is most satisfied with, we've departed from the conviction that there are universal moral principles to be found. That's the first part of our answer. How did we get here? Here's the second part of our answer. How did we get here? We have a counterfeit notion of freedom in the United States of America. 
from a biblical perspective, what we call freedom is actually slavery of the worst possible kind. This morning we'll look at the subject under three heads. First, the sense in which, the sense in which Christianity is utterly opposed to personal freedom. Secondly, the sense in which Christianity is the greatest of all champions of personal freedom. And thirdly, the kind of freedom that the gospel uniquely provides. Brothers and sisters, there is, first of all, a sense in which Christianity is utterly opposed to personal freedom. I'd like you to have your Bibles opened at this point to Romans chapter 6 and invite you to turn there as I continue. Perhaps one of the most famous lines now in the English language is this one. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence goes on to make the case, in less familiar terms to our society, for the tyranny of the king of Great Britain, and it includes this comment, a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Now, proponents of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, when they appeal to the cause of freedom, they are tapping into something that runs deep. In the collective psyche of America, we are a freedom-loving nation. But we're also a nation that's imbibed deeply of a secular and godless notion about human freedom. You could see a particular turn towards this counterfeit notion of freedom over the last 50 years, particularly through the cultural revolutions that began in the 60s. The last century, some would say, however, that those secular notions of freedom were mixed in with better, more noble, more Christian notions of freedom from the very outset of our nation's founding. Thanks to the influence of the Enlightenment upon certain of our founding fathers. You recall from last time we looked at two reigning paradigms for morality. Something is right in our day. If it is true to what you are, the name for that view of morality is existentialism. Something can't be wrong in our day if it doesn't hurt anyone. The name for that approach to morality is utilitarianism. Now, take those two approaches to morality, the prevailing approaches in our day, and combine them with a zeal for freedom, a passion for liberty, and it results in this notion of freedom. Freedom is the unhindered ability to be whatever I want to be. Freedom is the unhindered ability to do whatever I want to do, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone. We You and I may be thankful that there are utilitarian breaks on this notion of freedom in our day. A society with no utilitarian breaks, that was that caveat, unless it 
as long as it's not hurting anyone. A society without those utilitarian breaks degenerates into anarchy. Nonetheless, when you and I hear the argument made passionately that what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their homes is utterly, absolutely a matter of freedom. You need to recognize immediately this is a notion of freedom that is alien to the scriptures. In fact, it is antithetical to the word of God. If that is the stipulated definition of freedom, then Christian, you need to be prepared to be part of the anti-liberty party. If that's what freedom actually is. Now, in Romans chapter six, the apostle is actually heading off a very mistaken notion of freedom. The notion that because we're saved by grace, we can do whatever we want. So look with me now at Romans chapter six. And I'll begin reading at verse 15 and read through verse 19. What then are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your presented your members As slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. The apostle is heading off a notion of freedom that can actually creep into the church of Jesus Christ. The notion that because we've been saved by grace, it no longer matters what We do. We can do whatever we want because there's always forgiveness for sin. That's a notion that comes very naturally to all of us. It's a worldly notion of freedom that can be cloaked in the gospel. As one skeptic put it, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. I want you to see from Romans six how the apostle addresses that very mistaken notion of freedom in this whole section that I've read. The apostle introduces the Christian life as a life of slavery. Now, that's rather counterintuitive, especially in our day. In what sense could slavery be a good thing? Paul says three things to make clear what he means by that. The first thing he says is you're a slave to somebody. You don't have a choice. You're either a slave to righteousness or you're a slave to sin. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, 
either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul's dividing humanity into two kinds of people. There are two kinds of people because there are two kinds of slavery. There are slaves of sin that leads to death. There are slaves of obedience to God that leads to righteousness or eternal life. What Paul is saying is that what you want is determined by who your master is. If sin is your master, then you want what sin wants. If righteousness is your master, you want what righteousness wants. You and I are constitutionally servants. We are made to serve. We are made to follow. You're saying all the live long day, yes, master, to someone or to something. Contrary to the spirit of our age, none of us is born free. We were not designed, we were not created by God to be free in that absolute, radicalized sense. That's not very American to say, but it's the truth. Paul says you're a slave to somebody. The second thing he says in Romans 6 is that if you're a Christian, you've been taken from one kind of slavery to another kind of slavery. Salvation is not pure and simple deliverance from slavery. That sentence needs to be continued. It's deliverance from a certain kind of slavery to another kind of slavery, a slavery that leads to death to a slavery that leads to life. Again, verse 17, Paul says something full of thanksgiving. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed and have been set free from sin. Rather, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You're a Christian? God's done a transforming, a defining, identity-altering work in your life. If that's true of you, you have been given the heart of a slave. You were a slave of sin. Now you've been given a new heart, a heart for a new master. You have been brought from a death kind of slavery to a life-giving kind of slavery. He calls it slaves of righteousness. So you're going to be a slave of somebody. If you're a Christian, you've been brought from one kind of slavery to another kind of slavery. And so Paul uses the occasion, especially in the presence of confusion about freedom that can creep even into the church to say, thirdly, you must live a life of slavery in the service of God. Look at verse 19. Notice the way that he specifies our bodies and the parts thereof. For just as you once presented your members, that's a reference to our body and the parts of our bodies. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is what slaves do. They offer up their bodies for the service of their master. They speak for him. They keep watch for him. They run for him. They fight for him. They attend to him. That's what the apostles calling us to do. 
to offer up our bodies to the Lord, to view every movement of our bodies and the parts thereof as a kind of service to God. That's what a servant does. He's mindful ever, every moment of his master, his master's presence, his master's wishes. They're never far from his mind. A servant does what he does for his master. That's the conscious reason for what he does. A servant lives for the approval of his master. This is the nature of servanthood. Paul says it's the nature of the Christian life. It's the calling of every human being to be such a servant or slave. This is very much the identity of the apostles, not just Paul. Paul's continually expressing this form of self-identity as he starts his letters. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. James likewise starts his letter, James, a servant of God. So does Peter. So does Jude. Very much the identity of the Christian. Here's the point this morning, brothers and sisters. All this talk of servitude, slavery, does not sit well with modern notions of freedom. In fact, there's a basic straight-up conflict between the two. That there is anything good about slavery? Americans have no category for that in our day. Slavery of any kind is degrading, it's demoralizing, it's a path to miserable existence in the American mindset. Freedom is defined as the right and the ability to consult only one's own wishes and no other person somehow over you or me. A lifelong obligation to consult someone else's wishes and to conform your life to those that is antithetical to freedom as our nation increasingly defines it. The apostle would have another word for what our society calls freedom. He would call it rebellion. Let me remind everyone who's hearing these words of something very basic about who you are. God created you for a specific purpose. It was actually to glorify himself. That's why he created you. You and I glorify him in two ways, by having a relationship with him and by living in service to him. Now, that service is something that can be likened to slavery, as Paul does in this sense. We are obligated to conform everything about our lives to his will. Now, here's the good news. He is a good master. He has a great deal to say about how we should live. But there are whole areas of our lives that he is silent on. He doesn't prescribe every jot and tittle of how we're to live. There are realms of our lives where he simply says to us, in effect, you decide. As long as it's not against the will that I've revealed. And everything he does say. That binds us as his servants is always and invariably for our good. He is a good master. but He is a master nonetheless. And he has a as a master. He has a further reach a further right to claim from us 
our lives than any other master has ever been able to do, no matter what their desires. He, as a master, does not only regulate us when we go out and about in society. He regulates our private lives. Not just what you do outside your house, but what you do in your house, in your living room, in your bedroom. He goes further than this. He, as a master, reserves the right to regulate what you do in the privacy of your own thoughts. He has certain things to say about how you think and feel and where he's spoken. We are not free. We are slaves. And by his grace, happily so. Brothers and sisters, under this first heading, I am seeking to appeal to you to listen for those freedom and liberty buzzwords being thrown around today in light of this fundamental paradigm of the scriptures. The reason for our existence is to serve God. Realize that as has often taken place in a variety of settings, words about freedom and liberty are being used in the service of rebellion against rightful authority. There is a sense in which Christianity is utterly opposed to the notion of personal freedom. If that freedom be construed as the right to consult only one's own wants and desires and framing one's life. I say, brothers and sisters, listen in the culture for this degraded notion of freedom. Watch for it in your own heart. This should be a very, very familiar twist and turn and perversion of a good thing. Because we're capable of it every day of our lives. The Apostle Peter was aware of this when he wrote in 1 Peter 2, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. But there is a sense, secondly, in which Christianity is the greatest of all champions of personal freedom. Would you be turning in your Bible as I continue to Galatians chapter 2 for an example of this? The current issue of Christianity today has a cover story called The World the Missionaries Made. It features the work of sociologist Robert Woodbury and his Labors to show the effect of Christian missions on the development of nations. Now, you may be aware of this, but the secular stereotype of missionary activity is that it is nothing more than the arm of Western imperialism. And for whatever motives missionaries may have had, no matter uh, how benevolent they may personally have been, their work did more harm than good. And it was a means of subduing and subjecting nations to other nations. Professor Woodbury has amassed statistical data that tells a very different story to the question, why do some societies develop into freedom-loving 
democracies and others continue in authoritarian regimes where the citizenship has a lack of basic human rights. Woodbury's answer is this. The pervasive effects of Protestant missionaries in the last two centuries is the primary explanation for the difference. Now, Woodbury's research is so notable because it's attracting the attention and even the commendation of the unbelieving academic community. It's a fascinating observation. Woodbury's research shows that though missionaries go typically with zeal for one very focused thing, the conversion of sinners, their long term presence in nations has resulted in schools and printing presses, freedoms to vote and speak and assemble. Christianity Today sums up the thesis of his work. Want a blossoming democracy today? The solution is simple. If you have a time machine, send a 19th century missionary. Christianity, the greatest underlying cause of free societies in the modern world. Why? What is it about Christianity? And by the way, Woodbury's research emphasizes that it's actually Protestant Christianity that has had this statistical effect on other nations. What is it about Protestant Christianity in particular that is deeply tied to freedom? And what kind of freedom is that? You see an example of this in Galatians chapter 2. As I read, you'll hear the Apostle Paul fighting for freedom of a certain kind. Galatians chapter 2, I'll read the first five verses. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. If you're familiar with the book of Galatians, you know that it is a celebration largely and also a defense of the freedom that the gospel brings. Jesus Christ has brought freedom from the threat of judgment for our sins. Jesus Christ has freed us from the powerful hold that sin has upon our lives. And Jesus Christ has also done something in history that Paul is particularly referencing in Galatians 2. He's ushered in an era of freedom from many of those regulations that God himself had imposed under the old covenant. Now, that's the explanation in Galatians 2 for the reference to Titus and his lack of circumcision in order to be a member of the covenant community for many hundreds of years. You had to be circumcised. That was God's own provision. But Jesus had released his people from that provision among Many others. And so 
Titus, like many of Paul's converts, was able to remain as a Gentile uncircumcised. That was a point of contention with certain Jewish Christians, so-called. Paul stuck to his guns on this issue. He was unwilling to back down, even when it was the great apostle Peter, as elsewhere in Galatians, we're told Paul was in a fighting mood when it came to something we call Christian liberty. In Galatians 5, he will write, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. Now, what's this freedom? What is this thing that Paul and the other apostles are so zealous for and that has been a hallmark of Christianity and, in particular, Protestant Christianity? It's two things. This kind of freedom is a zeal for two specific things. First, freedom from all human regulations that masquerade as divine requirements. Freedom from all human regulations that masquerade as divine requirements. And secondly, freedom from all human regulations that hinder faithful obedience to God. All human regulations that hinder faithful obedience to God. A good example from church history of the former. Freedom from all human regulations that masquerade as divine requirements comes in the form of our Scottish forebears in their interactions, shall we say, with a monarchy that was intent on imposing upon them certain kinds of worship. The English prayer book was a tool of that kind of imposition of certain forms for worship. Now, a prayer book is a collection of prayers, songs, scripture readings for worship. At their best, they're wonderful devices to be used in public or private worship. We used one in public worship this morning as our confession of sin. Some of us have found great profit in using them in our private worship. But in the early days of the Reformation, prayer books were often used as a tool to enforce upon the people certain versions of worship to include remaining Roman Catholic elements. That did not go over well in the mother country of Scotland. I think I've told you the story. It's told of a particular Sunday morning when a new prayer book was being introduced. The infamous Archbishop Laud prayer book. It's being introduced at St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. The presiding minister got up and began to read for the first time from this new prayer book. And an elder's wife by the name of Jenny Geddes stood up and threw the stool she was seated upon at the minister's head. She was heard to say, imagine this in a Scottish brogue, please. Villain, dost thou say the mass in my hearing? Jenny's bravery became iconic. It served to rally the 
people of Scotland to fight for freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. There's actually a place in Scotland where you can go and see Jenny Geddes's stool on display with this inscription. Janet or Jenny Geddes on 23rd of July, 1637, struck the first blow in the great struggle for freedom of conscience, which after a conflict of half a century ended in the establishment of civil and religious liberty. Jenny Geddes was not objecting to paying her taxes. She was not seeking to lead a rebellion against lawful human authority, which she was in doing, in fact, was insisting on freedom from all human regulations that masquerade as divine requirements. The authorities were insisting on a certain way of worshiping as if God himself had imposed that. Jenny knew better. An example of a second kind of freedom very dear to the church, to the history, that of freedom from human regulations that hinder faithful obedience to God is in some of our founding fathers. The Pilgrim Fathers I'm thinking of in particular, the core of that group that settled Plymouth Colony did so for religious reasons, you will know. They had felt the fire of persecution for their faith in England. They had faced the conflict between God's law and man's law, and they had consistently defied human authority when it conflicted with divine authority. And so when given the opportunity, they boarded little boats like the Mayflower and came to the New World. They were seeking religious freedom. They did not come to the New World in order to be able to uh, engage in Bacchanalian orgies. They did not come to the New World in order to escape the rule of societal law. To see the kind of laws they set up immediately upon entering our nation, they came to escape regulations of men that thwarted the service of God. That's a freedom for which Christianity, in particular Protestant Christianity, Reformation Christianity, is famous for fighting for. But brothers and sisters, please notice. What these Christian views of human freedom have in common is this. They are rooted in devotion to God. Not devotion to oneself. They're rooted in a desire to obey God, not to escape his laws. They're driven by the awareness that God's law is higher than man's law. This is a far cry. From the thing which passes as freedom in our day, it can be put this simply. Freedom in America has become the freedom to do what I want. Freedom throughout church history has been this freedom to do what God requires. There's a world of difference between those two notions. Freedom. So ready yourselves, brothers and sisters, to fight one kind of freedom and to fight for the other kind of freedom. One of the ironies of our current social schizophrenia 
is that the very forces that are at work for so-called freedom are also demonstrably intent upon stripping Christians of their freedoms. When a society sets itself to protect its citizens' rights to live however they want, it eventually tramples the freedom of Christians to serve the Lord as he has required. One of you sent me recently notice about a law passed in New Jersey late last August. It was signed by Governor Chris Christie. It's a bill that prohibits counseling whose aim is to alter the sexual orientation of a minor. In the state of New Jersey, if you're a state licensed counselor in any capacity, you may not seek to lead a child with professed same sex attraction towards a normal heterosexual orientation, shall we say. This is a ban. On any council that speaks negatively to children under age 18 about homosexuality. The law purportedly only applies to professionals with some kind of state certification, but included in the text of the law is this expression or a person who performs counseling as part of the person's professional training. Every seminary I know of provides courses in counseling as part of the professional training for the ministry. We wonder where this will go. There's a similar law in California, one being considered in Virginia. Brothers and sisters, the kind of freedom that Christianity has historically been the greatest champion of, the freedom to serve God in unfettered ways, will increasingly conflict with the degraded notion of freedom in our society. You know what that's going to do? That's going to make you and me look like the rebellious ones. A society in rebellion and colluding in that will make those who insist on unfettered ability to serve God look like the rebellious ones. When you hear talk of freedom, recognize the march of tyranny that is behind it. Freedom to do as I please in our society means that you are not free to say what you think about what I'm doing. Be ready to fight the one kind of freedom and fight for the other kind of freedom. So there's a sense in which Christianity is utterly opposed to personal freedom. There's a sense in which Christianity the greatest of all champions of personal freedom. Let's end with the third point. The kind of freedom that the gospel uniquely provides. Would you turn back to John chapter 8? At this point, we read that at the outset. Before there was U.S. v. Windsor in 2013, there was... A Supreme Court decision called Lawrence v. Texas 10 years earlier in 2003. That was the ruling, some of you remember, by the high court that overturned so-called sodomy laws. Laws against homosexuality still in the books in Texas and 13 other states. Here's the majority opinion ruling also authored by Anthony Kennedy, the author of 
U.S. v. Windsor's majority opinion. He wrote, the liberty protected by the Constitution allows homosexual persons the right to choose to enter upon relationships in the confines of their homes and their own personal lives and still retain the dignity retain their dignity as free persons. Now, Justice Kennedy, along with all those who join him in defending those who are committed to sinful lifestyles, are just like the leaders of Israel that Jesus engages in John chapter 8. Look again at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Brothers and sisters, the reason Jesus Christ came was actually to deliver those who think they are free, but are in fact slaves to sin. And those who are by their slavery to sin, destroying themselves. Slavery in the Bible is fundamentally being caught in patterns of behavior that are self-destructive. That's what slavery is. And being caught in that and unable to stop doing what actually is destroying you. And the slavery goes even more deeply than that. It's not just being caught, being unable to get out of that pattern, but not even knowing that that is the way, that's the consequence of one's own actions. Freedom in the Scripture, the kind that Jesus is offering to the leaders of His day, comes with the knowledge, what I'm doing is killing me. In this life and in the life to come, it only brings death. That's the kind of freedom that Jesus comes and offers. The freedom that many young people, for example, want is the freedom to drink, to smoke, to have sex, to shoot drugs. Bondage for them many times is to want those things and not be able to do it. That's. What prison is like for them to want to be able to do those things and to be hindered from doing those things. But the Christian recognizes horrible consequences of many of those things. The Christian recognizes the basis of the word of God that freedom is is the ability not to do those things that one's flesh craves. And therefore, to escape the consequences of those things. That is the freedom that the gospel brings. You and I need to see in the very people that are speaking of freedom. What the Bible 
calls slavery to sin. Patrick Henry's immortal cry is on the lips of many a secularist. Give me liberty or give me death. That kind of liberty that's being sought today is what leads to death. That's actually slavery. Here's the happy reality. In the United States, in every nation on this globe, under God, there is no right, there is no freedom in God's universe to pursue self-destructive behavior and sin to include homosexuality is self-destructive behavior. God is not willing that any man in privacy of his own home or any place do what ruins his soul and damns him for eternity. That is slavery. The gospel is of Jesus Christ Offering just such persons freedom. You know that freedom begins? Freedom begins with the opening of the eyes to the reality of sin and its temporal and eternal consequences. Opening the eyes to what is in fact slavery. The gospel continues by providing such a person who has opened eyes opportunity to be cleansed and to be completely relieved of all the consequences in the life to come of the sin that has enslaved. And it actually goes so far as to spring such convicts, such prisoners of sin from their cells by giving them hearts and lives that are happy to run in the way of God's commandments. That's what the gospel offers. It offers it to you if you're hearing my words today. It offers that to you no matter what your particular kind of slavery is. No matter what the master of your life particularly looks like. The sin that is your master. The gospel of freedom from sin is what's desperately needed in our day. That's the only path to true freedom. President Obama, in response to U.S. v. Windsor last summer, gave a carefully prepared soundbite to the nation. He said, The laws of our land are catching up to the fundamental truth that millions of Americans hold in their hearts. When all Americans are treated as equal, no matter who they are or whom they love, we are all more. Therein lies the success of the homosexual lobby, so-called. It's been in placing this issue in a long line of other legitimate freedoms. Freedom from taxation without representation. Freedom of speech. Freedom of religion. Freedom of assembly. Freedom to have sex with who you will and to marry who you will, male or female. You recognize where the degrading of freedom happened in that progression of so-called freedoms. Freedom to serve God 
has become in our nation a freedom to rebel against God. And such freedom is no freedom at all. U.S. v. Windsor was nothing more than the results of the inexorable logic of American liberty as it is understood in our day. Given the prevailing understanding of freedom, U.S. v. Windsor was predictable. It was inevitable. This sermon has been about you and me recognizing the difference between freedom and rebellion. Freedom to serve my own desires and freedom to serve the Lord. In other words, the difference between slavery, as it truly is, and freedom, as it truly is. The words of the Apostle Peter, again, being fulfilled all around us, they promise freedom. They themselves are slaves of corruption. Let's pray together. Cleanse us, our God, of all such perversions of freedom, all such notions that no one else can tell us what to do, that that even you don't actually have rights over us in every part of our lives. Cleanse us from this, we pray. Forgive us. And then keep very, very clear before our eyes what is being said in reality in the name of freedom and liberty. Grant us the ability to fight for that Christian liberty that you as the supreme head of the church and king of kings grants to each one of us to serve you to obey you, regardless of any human regulation. We renew our commitment to fight for this liberty and, and to fight against everything that goes by that name, but is, in fact, insurrection, high treason, rebellion against a great creator and redeemer. So hear our prayer in these days. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.